0: And there's something about interpreting your own jargon and work yeah. um, that, in a way that is that really gets at sort of the inspirational piece. Finding your own personal story around that, and then being able to share it with the next generation and community is, um, I think, profound. And and I think it also reminds us, like, to what end do yeah. we show up every day and do do the work that we do.
1: This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. Okay, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in this week. Really excited about this week's interview. I've been trying to make this one happen for a long time. You know, when I launched this podcast, so many people told me, you got to get Holly Truitt on the podcast. She is one of the most inspirational and creative people on this campus, in this community. Holly is the director of the Broader Impacts Group here at the University of Montana, and I will let her explain to you all what that means. But in short, she just likes to tackle big problems to look at disparities in our culture, income disparities, health disparities, educational disparities, achievement disparities, she tries to bridge those gaps and brings together diverse coalitions of people, of thinkers, of creators to make these things happen. She tackles big problems, and her her and her team do amazing work. And what I want you to think about in this conversation is—well, at least my head was spinning, and I mentioned that a couple times because I just had so many questions for Holly. I mean, we're in an interesting moment here at the University of Montana as an institution. We need to figure out new ways to do things. And that's what Holly's all about. And so I was trying to map uh, her work onto the change that's maybe maybe needed here or uh, the process of sort of admitting that change needs to happen here and all those different dimensions around it. We got into that in the conversation. It just made me think, you know, if you're ever feeling stuck in your role in your institution— some of the lessons that Holly puts forth today are really, are really well taken. It can help you kind of reconceptualize how to get things done in your work. So uh, without any further ado, I'll give you Holly Truitt. All right. Well, we're here today with Holly Truitt. Holly, thanks for coming on the podcast.
0: Justin, thank you so much for having me.
1: So Holly, you're uh, kind of difficult to pin down. I've emailed you multiple times. And each time I do, I get a an auto-reply that says, Something along the lines of, "Thanks for your mail. I am in Maine, saving this community," or "Thanks for your email. I am in the wilds of some unknown land, saving their children from monsters from below," or you know, doing great work in other parts of the world, and, and try to bring back bring back some of that wisdom to Missoula. Sounds like.
0: Oh, you're so good. Um, <laughs> yeah, it has been a full year, and I think the big thing that has emerged for us is number of years ago, we sort of made this radical decision that we were no longer going to do organizationally bound work. And we were going to bring higher education and community together to co-create around really two points of change around um, closing opportunity gaps for the next generation. So, i.e., social mobility, American dream, Uh and uh, innovation building uh, here locally in Missoula. And as we've moved into this work of doing co-creative and collective-minded cross-sector work, what has taken off in the last few years is just a lot of inquiry and enthusiasm from well beyond Missoula, Montana. Um, And so this summer, as you mentioned, I was back in Maine um, uh, working with a group that is trying to think about they have incredible assets they have churches with large endowments great brick and mortar Uh that are used two hours a day and how do they or two hours a week and how do they begin to reimagine those into third places and community centers for kids Um, so honoring that legacy of what these um, endowments were created for a hub for community and connection with spirituality maybe looking a little bit different and in this moment in time Um, so it's it's been a really interesting, um, interesting summer. I was also working with MIT, mm-hmm. talking to them about the way that we have been co-creating with tribal communities and integrating culture and STEM together, and what that process looks like. Um, and then in France for a wild, uh, long weekend that was uh, with a group of people that are all—they're all community builders, but in all different spheres. Um, okay working in cryptocurrency, working in Facebook, working like I do in a highly localized level. Um, And so there were 20 of us that gathered um, with, it was, you know, it's a French billionaire that is interested in making investments back into community. He raised his money through a company much like Amazon.com that has been disruptive to rural France, which is the essence of of france and uh and thinking about what is community and how does he best invest and and work to um use those dollars that have come from such a different sector to help um promote rural france
1: wow so my head is spinning a little bit in the sense that you know we had this little pithy intro and then you i mean we could do four or five episodes just based on the last you, you your last uh your answer to the question, basically. But before we kind of try to pull some of those strings, because there were many strings there to pull, let's give the listeners just a little bio background. So you are the director of the Broader Impacts Group here at Montana uh, University of Montana and all the great work it does, director of Spectrum. But um, let's talk a little bit bit about your upbringing and what brought you to this position and, and, and what motivates you to do the work you do.
0: Justin, that is such a good question. Um, <laughs> it's kind of big. It's a big one. So I grew up on the, on bi-coastal. I lived in Oregon until I was eight. Mm-hmm. My mother died when I was eight. I've um, heard
1: that in, you know, I listened to your TED Talk and I've heard you talk about that before. So you had a, you know, a, a bumpy childhood yeah. in that regard.
0: Yeah, I very much so. And I think that um, what was profound for me is that community circled round um, okay. and family But community played a vital role in being able to find um, my people, my place, um, to begin to imagine, to dream something that was maybe more comfortable than the pain that was happening at home in relationship to my mom passing, of being part of a brand new family. My father was an alcoholic, and ultimately, um, when I was 14, sort of opted out of parenthood. And so it was... um, I feel like I have had such a joyful adulthood but my childhood was there were things that were tough but there were these sweet moments of connection that felt so profound and I think it's my commitment to community and to third places but um, I went to Tanglewood Camp in Maine, and okay. um, I would go for almost a month, a year, and it was an escape, and it was connection, and it was dreaming, and same for Girl State. And so there was woven throughout it were these community spaces, higher education, Tanglewood is part of the University of Maine. Okay. Um, and when I came to the University of Montana, for me at least, and I've, I've shared this in other places, I think it was the first time I truly felt home. Hmm. That it it gifted me this sense of connection and home and hope that there was something so much bigger than I could have imagined. And it, that's me. when
1: you came here as a student, right? Because you spent yes. some time at Simmons College before University of Montana. Is that is oh, that right?
0: I've done your research. I try a little bit, Good
1: you know. Job. I try a little Good bit. Job.
0: Yeah, yeah, I transferred here after my freshman year. So I went to Simmons in so Boston. What, yeah,
1: so was kind of tell us about that transition?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I think I grew up in a small coastal town in mm-hmm. Maine and I had it in my head that I was a big city gal and so when yeah, I got going into to Simmons, Yeah. The thing. Yeah, I going to go to Boston and as soon as I got there, it actually gets to this idea of community again. Um as soon as I got there, there was sort of a loneliness of that large city. Mm. And even though I was in this very intimate woman's college, very small class sizes, not uncommon to have seven or 14 uh, students and lots of connection with, um, with my sisters that I was learning with, but, but ultimately that Boston, it just felt so disjointed and it felt like, um, Classism was there and racism was yeah, there and yeah. just lots of others. Mm-hmm. And I found myself sort of dreaming about going west again. So, um, And I looked at a number of schools in Oregon and was thinking about relocating there and went and visited. And none of them quite felt right. They were either private or too big or they were all, I was like Goldilocks. There wasn't sure. the right fit. Um, and on a whim, I just decided to apply to the University of Montana and shortest application I've ever done. <laughs> and yeah. I think I like sent in my fifty dollar check and within a week I found out that I was in and I remember opening up a window at Simmons College and it's um just like you would imagine an East Coast school, all brick buildings facing into a courtyard uh-huh. and holding up my acceptance letter and yelling to my guys like, Guys, I got
1: in
0: <laughs> and um and I think we celebrated that night. But yeah, so it was it was a great thing to come to Missoula, and it felt just, at the Goldilocks metaphor, it was just right. Sure. Um, and I really haven't left since then. Mm-hmm. I did my graduate work here. And right.
1: I, Environmental studies? Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah, such
0: yeah. a wonderful program. Lots yeah. of great leadership. and And they were so open to... I really wanted to focus on designing for social change mm. um, and, and thinking particularly through the lens of public health, because there was lots of interesting things happening um, in social innovation, in the public health arena. And they were so open to letting me come in and do that work and let me study a bit at Johns Hopkins, which was amazing, sure. and work in Senator Bacchus's office in D.C. on a project around Libby. And so it was yeah, EVST was a delight. I, it
1: almost feels, and I don't know that curriculum well, and I don't know the faculty well. Uh, I just know by way of you know, our conversation, and then we had Nick Triolo on a few weeks ago. Uh, I don't know if you know Nick's work at all, but he's an environmental activist and storyteller, filmmaker, athlete, guide, a bunch of different things. But it just seems like that program, its I don't know if it's got the correct name in the sense that it just enables people to make change happen in so many different dimensions. It just seems like a great toolkit that they cultivate in their graduates.
0: I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it was really interesting to have, um, I mean, you can do a portfolio. You can do, for me, I did an action-based research project rather than a thesis.
1: What does that mean Um, exactly?
0: Well, it was so fun. So I was passionate about from working in Senator Bacchus's office. I was feeling really passionate about doing a project that was going to be around asbestos and asbestos policy Okay. Um, and thinking about co-creation, community co-creation within that. Um, and I had reached out to the de- Department for Environmental Quality, and they had said, "Well, if you want a really great issue to work on, Missoula has the highest non-compliance rate of any city in the state of Montana for asbestos inspections on public buildings, really? um, and public being buildings that we all visit, like mm-hmm. grocery stores and yeah.
1: If there were a building to inspect, yes, you think it, it would that. be a public building?
0: Yes, and it was daycares. We'd had ni- oh, non-compliance geez. with daycares with children getting exposed and um, and so what is an action-based research project is, is that, like finding something that's in the terroir or the soils of that place that's highly relevant and doing applied um, research with the goal of creating change. And um, and that is actually when I began to work with Mayor John Inkin. Uh-huh. He was a delight and let me come in and talk about the project that I was doing and um, the desire to really work with the city and co-creating a solution um, Don Veru, who was at the building office, was an incredible champion and partner. And then I also worked with contractors. And the big thing that I wanted to do was to keep this finding between this, these sort of key community stakeholders that could solve the problem. So rather than running to the Missoulian with the problem. Sure, sure. Yeah, solve became, the
1: problem rather than expose it.
0: Yes, exactly. You know? Yeah. So we began co-designing together. and um, Well,
1: that kind of speaks to your notion of community and yeah. that key value there. Right. Yeah. To co-create a solution and act on it rather than sort of, you know, try to I mean, journalists do different types of work. I mean, it's important for journalists to expose certain things. But in yeah. this case, yeah, you, you tackle a big problem, understand it and then solve it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's so true. And I think there is I so agree with you in this moment in time, particularly where we're not honoring the power of journalism around transparency mm-hmm. and that it is it is fundamental to democracy. Um but yeah, so it was a really interesting journey, and so I was writing my final paper, and at the same time, we were doing this work, and I was documenting it, and at the end of the day, the city of Missoula, in its usual wonderful fashion, passed an ordinance that um, that emulated a model out of Austin that we had looked at and worked sure. on, um, and so now, before you can get proof, or before you can get a public building permit, you have to show proof of inspection. Um, and what was amazing is, as I interviewed the contractors, the barrier was the market. That because hmm. it was not being enforced, people were losing. Um, contractors were reporting that they were losing jobs because um, their bid would come in too high because they were following uh, somebody the else. Lot. Somebody else would yeah. come
1: in with a bid that left that out, and they yeah. would get the work because yeah, you know, it's a line item that the the system didn't value. Yeah, interesting. So, and that was as a student you were doing that work. Yeah, so that was my graduate Your senior work. thesis. Yeah. Or graduate thesis, I yeah. guess, in this case. Yeah,
0: and through EVST, and it, I don't know if other departments would have been so invitational to um, to do that. But Dr. Robin Saho was my mentor, and Steve Schwartz yep. and Vicky Watson. I had an amazing team. Um, they were so celebratory and um, open to doing. It's it is the work of EVST.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so after that, what what happens next?
0: Oh, that's such a good question. So, Dr. Chuck Thompson and I, before I started graduate school, um, he had put, was putting in an NSF score grant and it included the concept of a science museum. Mm. And spectrum. I had a, Spectrum. Yeah, yeah, what yeah. would yeah. become Spectrum? And so I had helped him with the initial research and design and it got funded while I was in graduate school. And as I was getting done with graduate school, I just sent him an email and said, I hear there's money at Main Hall. Do you need help with this? <laughs> and my thought was that it would just be sort of a, a short project, and it became a love affair, and and then it seeded this opportunity to create the Broader Impacts
1: Group. Sure, sure. So just by way of kind of full—so just so we educate the listeners a little bit, EPSCOR, that—I can't remember what it stands for, but it's basically a federal grant program that delivers or tries to funnel science or research grants to states— that are underrepresented in terms of national funding for science is that is the NSF program correct?
0: That's correct. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so
1: Montana has is, is been receiving this grant a number of times, and it comes up what on five year cycles. And so yeah, building in a museum for children that brings, or actually. For the community, really, that brings science to life. Is that was sort of the genesis of Spectrum? Is that right?
0: Yeah. No. Very much so. So the infrastructure of not only just the research, but inspiring that next generation to move in and taking take on those careers and have an informed um, citizenry is sort of the broader impact side of it.
1: Yeah. And so now Spectrum rolls up into this larger entity called the Broader Impacts Group, which I mean, I'll let you kind of lay out the mission of this group. You're the director and. Yeah, what is the the broader impacts group all about?
0: Yeah, yeah. so we're passionate about uh, really harnessing the power of the university to co-create with community around. There are two primary points that um, we're working on right now. One of them is sort of STEM ecosystem, closing opportunity gaps, social mobility work, so very K-12, putting community in the driver's seat. So they're designing, co-designing all of the programming we do Primarily funded funded by federal and um, private foundations. Sure. And then locally, in addition to that work, we've begun to do a lot of work around uh, building an innovation ecosystem. Um, and so right now we're working, we've been working with um, Vice President Scott Wittenberg, Mayor John Ingen, Missoula Economic Partnership, the community through a recent Innovate UM day in co imagining. An innovation corridor.
1: Mm-hmm. And actually, tonight is the uh, celebration of yeah. what's it? Innovate UMS. You have some some party tonight, right? We
0: do. We're having a garden party um, on the rooftop of Stockman's Bank. Um, it should be a ton of fun. And we have some really interesting innovators who are doing lightning talks on innovation.
1: Lightning talks.
0: Yeah, three minutes, three slides. Oh, interesting. It's challenging. I've been working yeah. on mine, and it's like crushing me. And I'm doing it with my friend Elisa and. The two of us are. Yeah, like, the
1: two of you have to share yes. three minutes and three slides. Oof, yes. that's it's a challenge. tough.
0: It's tough.
1: So, okay, I, I want to kind of get into, gosh, Holly, so many things, but one is um, this bridge between these two kind of passion areas, or not passion areas, but like mission areas of Broader Impacts Group, it, it, helping cultivate this innovation ecosystem, but also addressing some disparities, whether it's in health, whether it's in econ- income, wealth, education, whatever. Let's, What's the bridge between the two? How do those mm. two kind of coalesce to, uh, you know, to work together?
0: Yeah, oh, it's such a great question. I mean, to me, a lot of my work looks at Nordic models. Um, and for instance, we're working on building a culture house here in Missoula. So bringing the library spectrum, children's museum, and extensions of our research labs under one roof in downtown Missoula. Um, And I think what you say,
1: sorry to interrupt, but when you say Nordic models, I'm assuming you're saying, you know, best practices learned from Sweden and Norway and Denmark and that region. But what what is it about those cultures that kind of creates those community ecosystems that you're trying to model? Yeah, I think,
0: I mean, I think there's some key ingredients. I think there's a real focus on collective impact and return on investment, particularly in the social arena that... Sort of proof of concept that we're, and, and how do we leverage dollars to create the maximum impact for our communities? Um, and then I think another piece of it is that there is such incredible transparency, and, and how do you create transparency and how do you allow community to help drive um, development, to help think about and drive um, emerging opportunities? Um, And I think that those are things that are really important for our country. And they Um, seem
1: thoroughly absent in the way we operate as a country, right? We don't have transparency and we don't really have good systems for judging whether or not policies work. Or if we do, it's strictly done by academics and there's no real acceptance of or evaluation of their work by government officials.
0: Yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, I just think for communities to think about as we invest invest dollars, like, What is the return on investment? What is it that we're hoping? And what is that point of change that we're working towards? And how do you even
1: conceptualize return on investment? Hi, this is Chris Shook, Dean of the College of Business at the University of Montana. And you are listening to A New Angle. All right, special announcement for all of you today. You probably know that this podcast is produced out of the College of Business at the University of Montana. But what you might not know is that the college will celebrate its 100th anniversary this year. And we have a big celebration planned. On September 21st and 22nd, we'll be celebrating our centennial with a full schedule of events. And we'd love for you to get involved. It's going to be an awesome couple of days. So please check out our website, www.business.umt.edu slash centennial for all the information. Hope to see you out there. It's going to be fun.
0: So a lot of our work is um, building collective projects or programs. And a fine example of that is Empower Place, which is at the Missoula Food Bank. Okay. So it's one part library, one part spectrum, science museums with the UM faculty role models and STEM role models from around the community. Um, one part feeding meal site where mm-hmm. kids can get food. Um, It also is meant to have intergenerational learning happening um, all towards this end that we know on a research level that those types of community hubs and after-school enrichment and early childhood literacy programming and STEM programming is a key ingredient to social mobility, to closing opportunity gaps. Um, And so we think of these spaces as these catalyzers and then uh, woven throughout it. And we're so fortunate to have large federal and national grants is research and evaluation. Mm. And so we have external and internal researchers and evaluators who are making meaning. And um, And it looks very different. Some of them are studying how is the collective working together and how are they self-identifying that their muscles are stronger from this and where are their rubs so that others can learn from this model and understand how we've shaped ourselves, and where are there um, sort of uh, budding roses of opportunity that are like we never imagined that could be possible. But the other piece of it, of course, is the downstream piece, and that's really looking at how is this impacting those that use the space. And so getting at changes of perception, tracking if people. For instance, at Empower, we're beginning to have – families or parents that are signing up for FAFSA and thinking mm. about going to higher education and yep. thinking about what comes next, in part because they're in a space with their child learning and connecting with faculty. And, um, and my sort of thought around it is, is recognizing that it's a place for them and these are people that they can connect with and in their community. And that, like I talked about in my childhood, these uh, points of hope and opportunity sure. um, so I think, I think that that's part of how we can begin um, as a community to think about return on investment. And often in organizations, I think it's really hard to have an incredible ROI, but when you do cross-sector work and Empower, for instance, has WIC integrated in. So it's a one-stop shop for all of these different pieces. Um, and that's a very Nordic model. And I think ecosystem building is the same, that um, – They've been thinking for years about how they um, align all oars across sectors towards a shared purpose, shared change, and doing it in a really thoughtful, strategic way.
1: So, Holly, as you're laying this out there, I mean, my, my head is kind of swimming, and it comes back to a term you used very early on in our conversation, and that was organizational constraints. Like, you're choosing to, I don't know if that was quite the precise term, but you're choosing to operate in areas where you're not constrained by organizations yet we are a university and you're operating with municipalities and all kinds of institutional inertias i don't know if that's a pl- word you can pluralize but i just did anyway my question is like how do you how do you get stuff how much you get so much done how do you get it done operating within all these institutions and the rules and the guidelines and the structures and all this other BS that we have to deal with on a daily basis?
0: That's such a good question. I mean, I think, so it's interesting. We don't expect anybody else to not be organizationally bound. We just move that way. So we're going to be adaptive and fluid and um, act like great designers. Um, okay. and actually, I mean, when you say
1: we, who is that? It's so you and Natalie and your and, group, but yes. it's, I mean, it's just a small team, right? It
0: is. And I think that's part of it, too. We're small. We're nimble. We import, um, re- honestly, world-class designers to help okay. um, on projects. Like the innovation corridor planning, there were a lot of different voices, a lot of different designers. Um, and we think that that chorus matters, that it, sure. that it adds to it. Um, but to your question of, like, how do we navigate operating often in spheres of higher education and city um, and also in private sector and then in social sector. I think that um, what has worked for us incredibly well is a guiding principle that we have is um, relationships first, co-creation second, Mm. and we're in it for the long play. And so we drink a lot of coffee. We talk a lot. We have powerful. We generally have community design groups that are really community advisory groups that are helping us with the design. They meet monthly in each of the communities and they help move forward the work that we're doing. Um, And I think there's part of that, just creating a space for relationships. It's always, um, there is a visionary and a dreaming point, but there's always a commitment to action and to getting uh, funding. And so making that flywheel start spinning and that's I think that's a really vital role that we play is we don't expect anyone else to have um, the capacity or the energy to move things as much as we are. And that we're going to meet people where they're at, see where they want to get, and then use, really, I often say, use the power of the university sure. and move things forward. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, and you create, you create awesome initiatives that people want to contribute to.
0: Yeah, yeah, and they're it, it. They're the community's initiatives. Like that's the their voices are in there, their ideas are in there, right. the commitment is there. Um, we also co-design with our funding sources, which is, I mean, I think it, a decade ago would be like a no-no, but in reality, it's like these often these philanthropic and um, federal agencies have such incredible understanding of the landscape and and listening with them hearing what they're seeing emerging being able to bring that back to community and to design around that um but i think the biggest piece is this idea that relationships matter and and that actually when when it's about um a handful of people joining arms to try to do something bigger than they could do on their own Mm -hmm. that um that it is those human things that move it forward and those boundaries of organization can flex because the people that are in those organizations believe in it, and they're able to be um, smart and adapt and nimble within their own landscape and, and help move things forward.
1: I mean, one of the things that, you know, I think about a lot, and it's been a theme of this program in various episodes, is how does higher education need to change? Mm-hmm. And just as you're laying it out there, I, you know, I'm thinking like the the, the model that you have I mean, can we build educational institutions around a model like that? I think about that in the context of what we do here at the College of Business. Can we build what we do around something like the what's happening at the Blackstone Launchpad and, and, you know, this this sort of learning by doing, but also this this fluid integration with the community? And, you know, why is it that a college education has to be four years? And why is it that the semester is 15 weeks long? All these other sort of institutional assumptions that seem to never get questioned. Like, how how... Do you think about that much? It's like how, how can we how can we do things better here? Or how do we have to?
0: Yes. It's so funny that you say that. So I have the treat in a couple of weeks of going to Stanford and to IDEO, and part of what I'm going to do is look at how they've designed um, innovation spaces, spaces and relationships. And, and you
1: have a relationship with Stanford, the the D School, right, yes. the Design School, yeah. and somebody's coming up from there to speak at Innovate UM tonight. Is that is that right? That's exactly okay.
0: right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's the Stanford D School and IDEO, and both of which are they're really looking at how can we use design thinking to drive change and to um, and to solve problems. Can, can you?
1: Sorry to interrupt again, yeah. but can you define design thinking? That's a term we've we've heard before, but what 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 is it?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll define it in my words, um, and I'm sure there's like an official description of it. But it's it's using the the design process to um, to emerge with like a solution or an opportunity of a way that we might solve this, and it acknowledges that. Um, that prototypes matter, that brainstorming matters, that um, getting different people around the table matters. And for us, our model is a little bit different. I mean, I think design thinking and co-creation cross over, but for us, we use an opportunity-driven co-creative process, which is that we're going to start with an opportunity in the community as opposed to framing as a problem. And I think particularly for communities that haven't historically had a seat at the table with government or with higher education, taking that opportunity-driven mindset as opposed to a deficit mindset matters. So is
1: that the core of design thinking? It's framed in, in the positive, like we're going to design something to meet an opportunity rather than design a solution to a problem? Is that...
0: I think design thinking is solution to a problem. For us in our co-creation model, okay. we use we use an, an asset approach. Um, I think some of it is because some of our soils are education and we know that an open mindset happens when there's possibilities and it's really easy to get a fixed mindset if it feels like there's a lot of barriers. Right. Um, so yeah, so design thinking the what IDEO and what Sanford D is focused on is human centered design thinking. So putting the human in the center of it and, um, and designing towards solutions. And so it can be anything. It could be a policy issue. It could be, um, a widget that needs to get created. Um, I think that with design thinking, interestingly, a lot of times it can be observational. So it's like an engineering process. Sure. Um, so you might observe how people are doing something. And I think the co-creative model says, let's also just have the people at the table. And in a radical or a co- um, complete co-creation model, we're going to have people at the table from day one that are, that are part of what we're working to solve and have sort of that unique expertise of The terroir, and so for us, that means that from everything—from identifying what the opportunity is to working on the proposal that's going to fund it, um, the setting the vision of what it is that the initiative is going to um, be—to implementing it, our communities are involved in the implementation. To even deciding, um, we use a reciprocal model often. Um, in our research, so community is looking at the question and saying, you know what, if you moved it one degree over, you'd really help us understand something. Mm. Um, and where that's come into play in a powerful way is on the Flathead Reservation that um, we are for the Maker Truck, which is integrating high tech making and cultural making together to allow kids entry points into. Technology and engineering, and hopefully into career pathways into SNK technology. Yeah, uh, talk
1: more about the Maker Truck because yeah. that's a that's a Spectrum initiative. It's, I mean, you tell us what it's about, but it's just doing fantastic work up on the reservation.
0: It is so cool. So it's part of Si Nation, which is now in its sixth year, uh-huh. and. Um, it is made up of, si Nation is a whole crew of STEM champions from the reservation um, who are helping to guide all of the design that we do. And we identified a number of years ago that we were hitting it out of the park and inspiring the next generation about environment and about health. Mm-hmm. But we were really struggling with technology. And, and that was a key piece of the change they wanted to see, that they want Um tribal members to be working for SNK technology, which has outposts in Dubai and gets yep. $40 million contracts. And, um, and so we just sort of uh, got on the balcony and really began to reflect about what the barriers were. And what emerged for us is that making is part of the Flathead Nation. Like this is core to who they are. And what the community felt like is if we could begin to integrate cultural making and high tech making kids might come for culture and stay for high tech, or they mm. might come for high tech and stay for culture. Sure. And so we looked at the Stanford, um, Stanford D has a spark truck model, And we looked at that and we began to think about how do we make that uniquely of this community? How do we add a cultural overlay? Um, And who might be the people that we co-create with? And what emerged is we'd work with the cultural committee and with local makers and um, figure out ways to integrate in laser cutter, authentically integrate in laser cutters, 3D printers. um, All kinds of new technologies. Yes, yes. Into the process. And. One of the questions that was really important to the tribe to explore was, do um, was the next generation spending more time on activities that had a cultural and high-tech component than simply a high-tech component? Sure. And we're finding that students spend about four times the length of time at an activity that has a cultural Um, has culture woven into it. Yeah,
1: and And that goes back to community and all the other values you've talked about.
0: Yeah, and then what's been amazing is tribal ed is now using those same research questions and observations in their setting, and they are uh, um, integrating culture into the schools, and for them to be able to begin to quantify and be able to um, talk about how culture matters and how it particularly matters to Native students and and how they see themselves as fitting into higher education and into careers um, and engagement.
1: Wow. Um, you know, as we're sitting here, Holly, I sort of feel compelled to maybe put you on the spot a little bit, draw you a little bit out of the broader impacts group and, and think about like, with all the insights and wisdom and lessons you've learned from you know, going and visiting these far off places bringing their best practices here experimenting working with community working with you know a diverse set of constituents i mean i just think about what we're going through here at the university mm-hmm. right now and, and having to well i mean i sort of accept the premise that we have to adapt and change and innovate and do things differently others on campus maybe agree or don't agree with that premise but i assume we agree on that premise and you know, if you were sort of charting the course, what would be, and I'm not asking you to, to sort of lay out specifics mm-hmm. of, you know, what needs to be cut and what needs to be invested. And that's not the discussion, but it's like culturally, how do we, as an institution, move forward?
0: Mm. It makes me think of one of my mentors is Ann Bowers, and she used to be the head of HR um, for Apple. Okay. And I was introduced to her through the Noyce Foundation. She was the she was married to Robert Noyce, who helped create the microchip and mm-hmm. um, kind of grandfather of Silicon Valley. And she has this profound mantra that I use all the time. And I wish I could get Anne out of my head at times. But she always says, never nice, always necessary. And I mm-hmm. think if we could use that as sort of this guiding light as to the work that we do, and and in ways almost a sword of like, what are we... It, I've referred to UM as like an exquisite overgrown rose bush, like
1: yeah, um, it's a good analogy.
0: And if we could trim it, you would really be able to see it's it's great lines, and you'd understand where the blossoms were and where the opportunity was. But at this point, it's like we we've every we have not. Sort of stepped back and thought about what it is to move from nice to necessary. Probably in a long time, and so if we were to begin to do trimming around that, like what is the work that we do that is so necessary to the public, that that allows us to exist. I mean, we exist for no other reason than to, um, in my opinion, than to to better Montana, um, both through the educational, the research, the economic, the Mm -hmm. meaning making co-creation uh, I, that's what we're here for um, and that and that is the expected return on investment um, so I think it'd be really interesting to use something like that as a means to begin to look in the mirror and to decide where where do we head um, yeah and I think just sort of on a design level and on a community co-creative um, level, I think it would be really fascinating to do listening across the state and particularly in tribal and rural settings and places that maybe aren't invited to the table that often. And to ask the question, um, in design labs, I'll often ask communities, um, "What if you were to imagine your community, what do you want most? What are the barriers? Like, how is your community different? Right than that at this moment, and how might this relationship help change that? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And if UM was to do a listening around those things, and how might we help change that?
1: Yeah, it seems like the whole framing of that dialogue is different than the way you'd sort of assume it's been done or being done. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. I I feel like um, higher education, right, it's one of the oldest institutions. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and it hasn't (laughs) adapted.
1: When you talk about things that are described as the oldest institutions, you you normally think of other illicit activities, but, uh, (laughs) but higher education, higher education is, uh, (laughs) it does have a long tradition. It does. Yes. And I think. And not one of necessarily adapting quickly. Yeah.
0: And by design, we are created to not adapt. Yeah. And that's not
1: that. I mean, there's, there's certain strengths to that. Yeah. Institutional knowledge, you know, those long, slow path and, and all that stuff is there's 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 value there. But um, it certainly feels like we're in a moment where we're a little stuck.
0: Yeah. No, I think it's, and we're not alone. And that I think is the really, if I was to say like using an opportunity mindset, like I think that is the exciting opportunity is how do we look at those who've already crossed, um, are beginning that evolution are beginning to move differently. What are the models that they might have? And then how do we think of them through our unique terroir? And that might be those listening sessions is, um, I know I work quite a bit with Alto University in Finland, and they've gone through a radical um, sort of reorganization, and they started, I believe as three separate institutions and Finland basically said, we're going to deinvest because we we don't one I think that there were issues with the number of students, and two, we don't think the work you're doing is that relevant so. Mm. You guys reimagine yeah. yourself, become more relevant. Um, and they, at the same time, began working with their community, um, and which is ESPO. And they began this process of saying they wanted to become the hub of innovation for Finland. And they did that a decade ago. And today, they are the hub of innovation for Finland. And something like 60% of CEOs have studied at Alta University. Wow. It's design. They use a design-driven model. They do co-creation with community they have an entrepreneurial, and that is like, that is the hub of their institution is sure. sort of what you were talking about, like that applied.
1: Yeah, and are they operating on a traditional academic calendar? Or have they changed up a lot of those sort of structural, uh, whatever, st- just structural systems?
0: Such a great question. I don't know about their academic year. I was there, I was there by midsummer, which is... Okay. Um, which is a time when all nordic people stop working. <laughs> so it was a very quiet yeah, yeah. time it's on like campus. The two
1: weeks of sun that yes, they get, they might yes, as well use it.
0: Exactly. Everybody was out playing yeah. um, and drinking aquavit. So <laughs> but so I I can't answer that question. My understanding is and this would require maybe a little bit of um, googling to to make sure that I'm correct. But my understanding is that they reimagined their tenure process. Um, yeah. so they did some radical stuff not only in reorganization And finding a new North Star and setting an intention that was larger than their institution. I Mm -hmm. think that's a big piece of it. Like, it was their city plus their university saying, this is who we want to be in the world. And this is who we want to be for Finland. Mm -hmm. And then, as they say, doing um, one sort of having a bold vision and doing one small experiment at a time to get closer to that vision. Um, And it's shaped everything from how they plan their housing to transportation um, to the way that they teach.
1: Yeah, it makes me think too of you know it's not only the structure of the university but structure of academia too, and, and these are maybe barriers or issues you faced in trying to get different academics, you know, faculty members to come in to your work. Like we operate in a world where publications are the coin of the realm, mm-hmm. and you know these journals have a very set structure, and it's almost like to 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 become more distinguished as a scientist, you have to learn more and more about less and less and it's a pretty narrow path. And yeah, I'm i ge- I'm making broad generalizations here. But to get a faculty member to dig into a messy real world problem that you know, maybe doesn't map on to the methodologies that we've learned in our PhD programs, that's a big ask at times, but you seem to be able to draw people in to the tent. Mm. And um Yeah, how do you you go about doing that? I mean, relationship you mentioned, but, like, actually, how do you build those?
0: I think there's something about – I feel like um, particularly as we think about closing opportunity gaps, so many of the researchers that we work with had a transformative person in their life, Mm. and it's – It's like building the Sistine Chapel, right? Like they're standing on the, they're passing. They want to pass back and continue the amazing work that they're doing to the next generation. Um, And I think there's something to that. I think there's wanting that connection. I actually think as humans, we're, um, and particularly in this moment in time and this digital moment we're pretty lonely for connection and the work that we do is all about relationships and co-creating and and having um aspirations and hopes and tangible and developing things that feel tangible that can help us get closer to achieving those so I think it's like noble goal meaningful work somebody did it for them they're going to pay it pay it forward um and then I think the other piece of it is, and this is really kudos to the federal government, is that federal grants require broader impacts in mm-hmm. many ways, and um, and that means that we all have skin in the game towards the sh- towards the shared vision. Um, and I think that with the broader impacts group, we're uniquely positioned to help faculty feel like they're making an investment that is going to actually um, really impact a community and impact the next generation, and so. And it makes their projects more competitive. I mean, you, with the small amount that faculty are generally putting in a proposal, you normally would not be able to have research, evaluation, sure. and design.
1: Yeah. And it also gives faculty line of sight, or researchers in general, line of sight into the application of the insights they generate and how it actually changes real people's lives in a real community. And, and that is tremendously rewarding. So being able to provide that platform is huge. Yeah. yeah,
0: No, I so agree. And there's something about interpreting your own jargon and work yeah. um, that in a way that is that really gets at sort of the inspirational piece, finding your own personal story around that and then being able to share it with the next generation and community is um, I think profound and, and I think it also reminds us like to what end? Do yeah. we show up every day and do, do the work that we do?
1: Important questions. That seems like a really great way to end the conversation, Holly. Thank you so much for your contributions to, to University of Montana, the, the community, the state, all of that. But also thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing your story.
0: Oh, thank you, Justin. Can we
1: have you back? Would you come back? Because I have like uh, two more hours of content we could easily fill up. You bet. But you have a thousand things to do between now and the end of your day. So I'll oh, let you go.
0: Thanks, Justin. Thanks,
1: Holly. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Holly. It certainly blew my mind and has made me think about many, many things in different ways. So, uh, thanks to Holly for the time. Coming up next week, we have Russ Piazza. Russ is the principal and founder of Front Street Capital. He is an investment manager here in Missoula and he's just been killing it the last several years. He manages the Tarchio Fund, which has been the top rated mid cap growth fund. So, it's basically top in its category. Something like four out of the last five years. I'll let you. I'll let Russ uh, um, tell you about all the success next week. Anyway, Russ is a super intriguing guy. He is. Um, he won't call himself a contrarian. He's got a very firm view of of how he interprets value, how he um, sort of makes choices with his investment strategies, and a really interesting guy. A fun conversation, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to a new angle. We really appreciate it. Remember that A New Angle was brought to you by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. They're one of the largest electrical wholesale suppliers in the country with nearly 600 locations nationwide. CED is a privately held business-to-business company that distributes just about every piece of equipment you need to keep your lights on, your energy flowing, and your lifestyle comfortable. CED is also an important employer in our community, and they have a keen interest in University of Montana graduates. To explore career opportunities, check out www.cedcareers.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways you can support it. First, please rate us on iTunes. Ratings help others find the podcast. Second, write a review. The more reviews we get, and hopefully positive ones, the more we can grow. And third, just tell your friends about it. Before we go, I'd like to thank a few folks for making this podcast happen. First off, thanks to Elizabeth Willey, Communications Director here at the College of Business. And thanks to our fabulous interns, Savannah Slutton and Max Gibson. I'd also like to give a special shout out to VTO for providing us with music. And finally, thanks to our producer, Jeff Meese. As we go, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word and be sure to use the hashtag A New Angle when you do. Thanks a lot and see you next time.